Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Friday, November the 30th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Today's guest, Bill Browder, was the largest foreign investor in Russia until 2005, when he was denied re-entry to that country after he had exposed widespread corruption there. In 2009, his lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, was murdered in Russian police custody. And since then, Browder has devoted himself to exposing and penalising human rights abuses in Russia and elsewhere by targeting the assets of those connected to such crimes. Sergei Mag- Magnitsky's torture and murder, let's call it what it really was, is but an extreme example of a problem that is unfortunately all too common and widespread in Russia today. The flagrant violations of the rule of law and basic human rights... The late Senator John McCain was among those who supported Browder's campaign. A law freezing assets and imposing visa bans on officials involved in Magnitsky's murder, called the Sergei Magnitsky Act, was signed into US law in 2012. The Magnitsky Act enraged Russian President Vladimir Putin and he's been fighting for its repeal ever since. But outside of politics, few people might have heard of the act until last year when news broke about a now infamous meeting in Trump Tower, which took place in the summer of 2016. The president's son, his senior advisor and son-in-law Jared Kushner and his former campaign chairman met with a Russian lawyer. Natalia Veselnitskaya says that she held this meeting with Donald Trump Jr. in order to push forward her... Uh, attempts to lobby for the repeal of the US Magnitsky Act. While all of this is going on, Browder is continuing his worldwide campaign. It's brought him to Ireland on several occasions previously and it's brought him to Dublin today. Um, I'm here for two two reasons. Um, uh, the, the first and most important is that we're kicking off our um, Irish Magnitsky Act campaign here today. Um, uh, I'm, uh, I've been on a mission uh, to get Magnitsky acts all over the world and all over Europe. And, and we had one um, false start in Ireland a few years back. And given how everything has changed, I think it's now time to revisit the, the story. Um, the, the second reason is that we're actually um, providing evidence to law enforcement about uh, uh, Russian organized crime money from the Magnitsky case coming to Ireland. Well, those are those are two very interesting reasons. Just to go back to the last time, the the false start that you mentioned there. What what happened? Were you working with politicians here at that time? So I, I had a whole group of politicians um, uh, from all different parties um, who I had met um, at various international forums, um, who were extremely excited about the Magnitsky Act being in Ireland. I was invited to um, testify at the. Um, uh, your parliament, you have a the name, a name the for the, the, yeah. the Doyle, um, um, and um, to the Foreign Affairs Committee. I, I gave my testimony. Um, uh, there was uh, Ireland, in a certain way, is, is one of the, for me, one of the best countries to sort of make my case because the, the culture. I'm American. I'm, I'm I spend most of my life in, in the UK now, but the culture is most similar to America and in the UK versus going to. 
Austria or Hungary or sure. Sweden to try to talk about things. I and mean, people understand right and wrong. People understand good and evil here. And um, I made my case, and everyone said, yes, this makes a whole lot of sense. Let's, let's do a Magnitsky Act in Ireland. And then just as it was getting to the point of, of, of a vote, um, the Russian ambassador um, to Ireland intervened. And he threatened Ireland, and he said, if, if Ireland goes forward with the Irish Magnitsky Act, then we will ban adoptions of Russian orphans by Irish families. And, um, and this was something that they had done, the Russians had done after the Americans passed the Magnitsky Act, and so it was a credible threat. And there were a number of families right in the middle of the adoption process, and um, uh, the, par- the members of parliament uh, said, you know, we're not going to do this now. Because famously, of course, the uh, the famous Trump Tower meeting in, uh, in in 2016 was about adoptions, according to according to Donald Trump. In fact, what that meant was it related to, to some extent to the Magnitsky Act. I mean, I don't want to seem too self-important um, in my struggle for justice, but it seems that everything is kind of relating to the Magnitsky Act. The, the Magnitsky Act was the reason why Putin... Um, uh, went to Trump Tower. The Magnitsky Act is one of the reasons why Putin wanted Trump to be elected president as opposed to Hillary Clinton. The Magnitsky Act is Putin's number one foreign policy priority to repeal. I, I should just point out for everybody why Putin cares about the Magnitsky Act yeah, so please much. Do. Um, so the Magnitsky Act um, uh, sanctions <clears throat> human rights violators by freezing their assets and banning their visas. And Putin is a human rights violator. I think that that's, that's now a given. And he's got a lot of assets, and he doesn't hold those assets in Russia. He holds them in the West. I would argue that Putin is probably the richest man in the world. And so for a human rights violator who has a lot of assets in the West um, to see the prospect of a law which, which freezes the assets of human rights violators, that affects Putin very personally. And that's why he's taken such a great interest in me and in the Magnitsky Act and in stopping the Magnitsky Act. And uh, I, I was uh, listening to a, a further analysis of this from, I think, a, a New Yorker correspondent who was talking about what his sources in the American intelligence community were saying. And he was saying that further to that point, which you make, that also the the whole sistema, as they call it in Russia, the the under which Putin exerts control and authority uh, depends on him being able to offer protection to his fellow oligarchs and to other other people who, who benefit from his patronage and that the Magnitsky Act threatens that or undermines it to some extent. Exactly. So, so you have this situation where in order for Putin not to be overthrown, um, he has to have a bunch of loyal deputies, lieutenants who are who will do anything for him. And in order to um, keep their loyalty, he pays them, and he pays them really well. And so when I say Putin is the richest man in the world, I think he's worth $200 billion. And if you look at his entourage around him, the top 1,000 people in Russia, I would say that they're worth, in total, including Putin, a trillion dollars. So it's $800 billion of money that he's divvied out from the state, stealing from the Russian people for his own, for his own people. And, and so if that, so that loyalty is very important to him so he's not overthrown and that he can sort of exercise his uh, uh, iron will um, without any um, interruptions or disloyalty. And um, if all of a sudden those people's assets are also frozen, then effectively he hasn't paid them if, he hasn't, um, if, they ha- if their money is no longer available to them. And so it becomes a very uh, – it's very personal and, is, and I, would, I would say it's an existential threat to his regime. His existence is at risk if the money doesn't flow. 
Now, to come back to the second part of what you said you were in Dublin for the um, speaking to the uh, authorities about uh, illegal activities, is that fair to say, uh, in the financial uh, financial sector? So let me just um, define it for everybody, which is that um, after Sergei Magnitsky was killed um, uh, in 2009, um, we tried to get justice for him in Russia. And Putin personally got involved in circling the wagons and saying, um, nobody did anything wrong, that, that Sergei Magnitsky died of natural causes and that he hadn't uncovered a crime. And the, 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 the real reason, uh, so the, 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 the real truth of the matter is that Sergei Magnitsky was beaten on the last night of his life. He was tortured. He was denied medical care. It was all very apparent. It was all very um, uh, provable. And that the reason he did that, that they did that to him was because he uncovered a $230 million tax rebate fraud that, was, that, that a number of government officials benefited from. So we said, okay, if Putin is going to deny us justice in Russia for murder and torture, then let's figure out who got that $230 million and prosecute them in the West. And for nine years, um, uh, I have a team of people working with me, a forensic investigation team, and we have found that money. And um, since once we find the money, then we, wherever we find that money, we then go to the law enforcement agencies of the country that, um, where we found the money, and we file an official criminal complaint. And we've done this now in um, in, in more than two dozen countries, and there are 16 live uh, money laundering investigations open. Any and, prosecutions yet? Um, or are, the, are there any convictions yet? Um, there was a, um, uh, well, this comes back to the Trump Tower. In America, we found, um, we found a couple million dollars going into real estate in, in Manhattan, and the U.S. authorities froze $20 million of assets, and they eventually got a, um, a $6 million settlement. Um, it was like a plea bargain from the uh, Russian, uh, the, the alleged Russian gangsters um, uh, who were the beneficiaries of this money. And so that was the first sort of like clear kill, clean, you know, clean kill where there was, uh, where they got uh, $6 million from the Russian gangsters. Mm-hmm. So the, um, uh, uh, there's now um, about 40, I think $44 million frozen in other countries. There's money frozen in the Netherlands. There's money uh, frozen in Switzerland. There's money frozen in France. There's money frozen in Luxembourg and in Monaco. Um, and there's criminal cases opened up where money isn't frozen. And this is one of the countries where there's a criminal case open. No money has been frozen yet. Um, but we found this money. It's connected. It's blood money. It's connected to the murder of Sergei Magnitsky. The authorities have opened a case and we're here um, to provide evidence to the authorities. Now, you're, you've been um, conducting this campaign for almost a decade now, since since 2009. Before that, you were a phenomenally successful uh, businessman and investor in your own right in um, in Russia. Um, I've talked to a number of people over the last year and a half about this this huge, rather difficult to to distill down into, into into one sentence phenomenon of what's happening with the United States and Russia and the the influence of of, of Putin in particular. Um, and one of the things that appears to have happened is that the the corruption, the, the kleptocracy, as you would describe it, of, of of Putin's Russia, seems to have infected democratic institutions in the in the in the West as well. The vast amounts of money which are sloshing around as a result of as a result of this, we've seen what the the effect they've had in the American political system, and they also seem to be an impediment, do they not, to 
taking uh, taking strong action, let's say, in the UK because of the amount of Russian money that's in place. And you, I've heard you talk as well about you got quite far down the road in the Netherlands at one point in terms of the parliament um, supporting the Magnitsky Act. But then there was pushback from government. And the implication, I think, is that, that that's because of the, the huge vested financial interests. It's 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 remarkable, and 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 the Russians understand human nature better than anybody. Putin is a KGB operative; he's an officer, and um, and a, and a sociopath. And so he doesn't really look at anything. He, there's no right and wrong in his world. It's all about how do I influence a person to do what I want them to do. And there's two ways that he goes about influencing people. One is with bribery, and the second is with blackmail or extortion. And and so and sometimes the the first and the second are, are sort of tied together, and so what the Russian government does and they do it so successfully it's it, I really I'm almost in awe of of how they <laughs> how they they operate they they just go around and and just in every different system no matter how legitimate and good it is they poke around and find the weak the the weak hand the weak, the weak, the weak link and uh, that will take the money. And, and they just find it, and they find it everywhere. I mean, the most remarkable story is, is in Denmark. Denmark is considered to be one of the most transparent, honest countries in the world. It's ranked as, like, the, the, the most transparent country in the world. And they found a group of Danish bankers um, uh, who were ready to, to put aside all their honesty and all their transparency and all the good things that, the Den- that Denmark is famous for and launder $234 billion dollars from Russia and the former Soviet Union through Dansky Bank, um, uh, in a, br- a branch of Dansky Bank in Estonia. So, the, um, I mean, it, it's just it, it's uh, you, you want almost you really have to take your hat off to the Russians to find these things. Another example is that we opened a criminal case in Switzerland um, connected to the to the Magnitsky uh, story. Um, the the Swiss froze um, twenty million dollars of accounts at Credit Suisse and UBS. And um, and the case was just bumbling along and not going anywhere, and the and the, the prosecutor's office was not doing anything. And it, it has since emerged that one of the most senior people um, in the Swiss federal police in charge of Russian money laundering investigations and in charge of this investigation was corrupted by the Russians. And it's Switzerland. So should we in Ireland be particularly concerned about that, given that we have a very very large offshore banking services area? You shouldn't just be concerned about it. Um, uh, you should you should know that the Russians have corrupted the the Irish financial system for sure, and it's just a question of where, and it's a question of what the authorities will do about it. How does that work in your experience, looking at it in, in other countries? Well, it works in different ways and in, in different um, in, in different respects. But uh, the, the most important thing is that um, the Russians will find um, uh, a situation which. Um, Either uh, the regulator doesn't regulate, um, or or the um, commercial institutions don't do their homework. They don't do their checks, and then they will infiltrate that with their money. And once the money is there, then all of a sudden they have accomplices, and then they have people potentially very powerful accomplices who are getting a lot of money that don't want to have the gravy train stopped. And and there'll be something like that here for sure. Now you've had. Some success over the last week or two. There's some signs of some signs of progress in terms of implementing the Magnitsky Act in other European countries as well. Um, so, so the most significant thing is that so we have Magnitsky Acts in six countries so far: the United States, Canada, the UK, and then the three Baltic countries: Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. Um, 
the most important thing is to try to get the European Union as a whole. Instead of me having to <clears throat> come to Ireland or go to Paris and try to make all this stuff happen, um, if we can get the EU, then we get 28 in one. And the EU has been notoriously unhelpful in this exercise. I, uh, uh, in 2014, the European Parliament voted unanimously um, for a Magnitsky Act. Um, and then it, it went for, for consideration by this woman who's char in charge of the foreign policy of the European Union. Her name is Federica Mogherini. She's an Italian. She wasn't elected to anything. She was appointed in some strange backroom deal. And, and she said, um, uh, no, don't think it's a good idea. And so the, the democratically elected people of Europe through their parliamentarians unanimously called on a Magnitsky Act. And then this woman who's not elected, um, who sits in some bureaucratic position at the top of this pyramid, says, no, not a good idea. Not the first time we've seen a democratic <clears throat> deficit in the EU, mind you. Um, definitely not. And so, so anyway, so nothing happened there. And, and so the, I, I went to Holland, like I'm here in Ireland, and I got a bunch of um, MPs, members of parliament from their parliament, to put a resolution forward to the um, uh, to the government and saying, we want a Magnitsky Act. And in and, and their discussions, the government said, well, you know, we think it's really a great idea, but uh, uh, which, which wasn't their sincere position. Um, but let's just do it at an EU level, knowing full well that they kick it back over to uh, Federico Mogherini and that would be the end of the story. Well, my, my uh, allies in the Dutch parliament were sort of playing chess, not checkers. And said, they said, okay, um, we're going to put forth a formal parliamentary resolution calling on the government to go to the EU, and you've got five months to do it. Um, and if it fails, then you come back here and, and propose um, Dutch Magnitsky legislation. And the government, the people in the government said, no, 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 that, let's not do that. That's like unnecessary. And they said, no, 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 we're going to put, put this forward. They had a vote, and um, the, uh, the main government party voted against it, and the, the far left and the far right parties voted against it. But they have a minority government in, in Holland, and the rest of the parliament voted for it, and it passed. And the government was forced um, to do this, to go to the EU. And so they, they, they delayed and prevaricated and didn't do anything for a long time. And, and, it pa and there was a five-month deadline. They passed the deadline. And then my allies in the Dutch parliament said, okay, what have you done? And they said, okay, okay, okay. And so they finally then um, sort of half-heartedly proposed an EU Magnitsky Act. Um, they did one thing, which was truly offensive, which is they took Sergei Magnitsky's name off of it, thinking that that would be less offensive to Vladimir Putin sort of in a sort of craven appeasement strategy. Um, but once it got into play, all of a sudden people started saying, yeah, this is not such a bad idea. The Germans showed up and said, we support it. The French showed up and said, we support it. The UK, who has already passed their Magnitsky Act, said that we support it. The, the Baltics said, we support it. And all of a sudden this thing is now become real. This, there's a real Magnitsky Act uh, going, uh, going into the EU, and it's going to be considered on the 10th of December. And does that require a majority or a unanimous vote? That, that requires a unanimous vote. And is there not a potential difficulty there in that, I mean, there are tw 27 different countries, or will shortly be 27 down from 28, and um, some of them have quite close relationships with the Putin regime. They, they do, and and that's the charitable explanation for why um, why the, the the Dutch have removed Sergei Magnitsky's name from the from the legislation. But I don't believe that for a second that Cyprus has has this has, has any say over Germany. If Germany wants this, Cyprus better keep their little mouth shut because um, uh, uh, they're 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 sort of fully. 
uh, their whole existence is based on the, the um, grace and goodwill of Germany. Realistically, they can't veto. If, if, they, if they did, then, then, then they'd have a lot of troubles in a lot of other places. And that's the same thing true for Hungary and Austria and any, and any of these other little countries that, that pride themselves on being so friendly with Russia. And, and one thing further, um, which is really important, is that all these little countries that are supposed to be such good friends with Russia are all having their own problems with Russia. The Greeks had to kick out some, some Russian spies. The, the Austrians are now um, fuming about Russian uh, military intelligence in Austria. And so it's, it's – and, and in, in the main backdrop of this whole thing, um, you've got Putin who's like closed off the Sea of Azov um, and, and taken three Ukrainian uh, boats hostage. Um, so it's, it's not as, as if anyone should be giving any – presence to Vladimir Putin right now. Well, indeed. And I, I wanted to ask you that because over the course of this this nine-year campaign, how much have you found people more willing to listen to you depending upon the ebb and flow of relationships between Russia and the West, for example, in the aftermath of, of, the, of the initial war in Ukraine, the annexation of Crimea? When those kind of incidents happened, were, were, were uh, the corridors of power more open to you for a while as a result of that? Does, does that impact something like the, the shooting down of the Dutch airline or does that impact opinion in the Netherlands on, on the Magnitsky Act? Completely. So uh, people ask me, um, who is the who's your best ally and a- advocate in passing the Magnitsky Act? And my answer is, is without question, Vladimir Putin. He's the best. A- he's the best person to get this Magnitsky Act passed because, I mean, the Magnitsky Act is real simple. Um, it, it's a question to governments and parliaments: Should we or should we not allow Russian torturers and murderers to come into our country? The obvious answer is we should not allow that. Um, the only people who ever um, argue against the Magnitsky Act are, are what I call the sort of appeasement crowd. It's like we need to like uh, be reasonable with, with you know, we, we need to like have a, a dialogue and show them some respect. But um, those people's um, arguments get completely drowned out when Putin has shot down a passenger plane with 298 innocent people on board or when he's cheated in the Olympics or tried to manipulate the French elections or the U.S. elections or or any of it or – killed people in Syria or, or whatever it is that he's done in that particular week. And so the, um, I mean, just to give you an example, uh, we were working on the Magnitsky Act in the UK and, and the British government, uh, uh, there's a lot of people um, close to uh, the British government that are making a lot of money off of, dirty money off of Russia. And they've been trying to block me for years. And, and then all of a sudden, uh, Russia uses high-grade military chemical weapons um, to do an assassination attempt in Salisbury. And so nobody's going to stand up in parliament and defend the Russians after that. And so the Magnitsky Act sailed through only because of Salisbury. Why do you think Salisbury happened? I mean, whatever about Putin's desire to um, to take take his revenge on, on, on Mr. Skripal, to do it in such an obvious way, um, what, what's the intention behind that, do you think? Well, for, first of all, it wasn't obvious until we discovered what the what the compound was that, that, that they, they used. And so he, he's, he's sort of operating with 15-year lag in terms of using all these tools for assassinations okay. and so on. So he, he didn't think he was going to get caught. So you didn't think – because some people theorized at the time that he was, it was deliberately sending a, you know, an, an overt signal. You don't think so? Well, well so, so what, what, he, what he wants to do – and what he likes to do is he likes to, to um, send out mixed signals. He likes to say he likes. So th- there was a signal here for sure. And the signal wasn't to anybody other than his own um, secret police in Russia, which was um, if you even think about betraying me, 
Um, we'll track you down anywhere in the world and we'll kill you and, and we'll kill you in a horrible way and we'll kill your family members. That's that's the message. And, he, and th- that message he wanted sent loud and clear to every person in his in his secret service, in his secret police, in his in his presidential guard and, and everybody around him. Because the money that he used to be able to pay people has now sort of starting to dry up. And so he needs – if he can't motivate people with carrots, he needs to do with sticks. But he likes to do these messages at the same time with total – deniability. And so he wants everyone to know he did it, but he doesn't want to have people discover that he did it because then he has to bear the consequences. And he was operating with a 15-year lag. They used to use all these chemical weapons and radioactive weapons and so on and so forth with 100% success and no detection back in the old days. And they have like laboratories where they cook up this stuff in Moscow. And then all of a sudden, um, you know, we're now in a modern world where pretty much everything gets figured out. You know, everything gets figured out scientifically. Everything gets figured out um, digitally, and and uh, and he got busted completely. Not and, and not just busted, but they were so stupid that they, they these the, the Russian military intelligence organization um, organized all of their cars. Um, but with the same insurance company and the same oh, registration. It was absurd, wasn't it? And, yeah. and and not only did they get busted in this Salisbury incident. They got every the, the entire network of assassins, spies, and manipulators from the Russian military intelligence across Europe have been exposed and rounded up. And we've seen like, I don't know, half a dozen of these on television. But let me tell you, there's a lot more that aren't on TV. And, and it's a total humiliation for Vladimir Putin. This is one of the things I find so astonishing about this whole process is that on one hand, you have some incredibly sophisticated and immoral... Uh, strategies for undermining, you know, what we would think of as democratic norms and the and the rule of law. And on the other hand, there's this sort of Keystone Cops element to it as well. We see this. I mean, we see this with the Trump administration as well as with the Putin administration. It, well, well <clears throat> part part of it is Keystone Cops, and part of it is that that we're in a world where there are no secrets anymore. There's you know, everything is on CCTV. Everything is everybody's using social media. Every, every, you know, uh, machine learning. You can look at all da- data and, and figure out what's going on. And so, what used to be <clears throat> crimes that, that could never be discovered, or all crimes that will be all will be discovered. And and the Russians are actually the best at it. I mean, I. I Kind of, um, uh, I mean, and, and I look at this whole Saudi situation. You know, the Russians send in two of their very best military intelligence guys, and they get caught, and the whole military intelligence organization gets exposed. The Saudis send in fifteen guys with bone saws and forensic, you know, and then and they get caught within like thirty seconds of their of their uh, assassination attempts. Mm. Speaking of the Saudis, actually, the, the Khashoggi case raises the prospect now that the Magnitsky Act might will not just be applied to uh, to Russia, but uh, to other authoritarian or kleptocratic or murderous regimes. And it seems a perfect fit for what we've seen happening in, in Saudi over the last <coughs> few weeks, doesn't it? Well, the Magnitsky Act um, has been broadened um, and to become a global piece of legislation. It was broadened. So every country that has a Magnitsky Act now, it doesn't just apply to Russian gangsters and, and bad guys, but it applies to everybody. And, and, um, <clears throat> and there is no more appropriate case um, for a, a, a applying the Magnitsky Act than the Khashoggi murder. <clears throat> Khashoggi was a, was a dissident he was a journalist. He was exposing the crimes of the Saudi regime. And then in an extraterritorial, extrajudicial way, they murdered him and chopped him into little pieces in, in, in Istanbul. There is no more, more appropriate use of the Magnitsky Act. It has now been used um, by the United States, by Canada, on 17 different people 
involved in this murder, but they have not yet used it on Mohammed bin Salman, the guy who, according to all information that I've read, was the person who ordered the murder. Do you think there's any prospect of that? Um, Well, uh, Donald Trump has said no. And he's put himself in a quite unpleasant situation because uh, I've been in Washington recently, and this is not a partisan issue. This is not Democrats versus Republicans. Every member of Congress that I've spoken to is is absolutely hungry, hungry for justice in this case. They're hungry for justice um, against Mohammed bin Salman. People don't view him as untouchable in Washington. And if they don't sanction him, um, there will be other sanctions from the United States Congress on Saudi Arabia, including the... Uh, suspension of arms sales or perhaps the suspension of any military cooperation in this uh, horrible war in Yemen. Can I ask your your view on um, the developments this week around Paul Manafort? People are trying to figure out what happened, why Paul Manafort, essentially, who who is no longer cooperating with the with the Mueller inquiry, and essentially seems to have accepted the fact that he's going to spend the most the rest of his life in in jail as a result. Why he might make that decision? One suggestion, obviously, is that he 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 believes he'll get a pardon from uh, from President Trump, and the other is that he fears not just for his own uh, life, but for the life of his family as well. Is that justified? Um, well, I think he's got, you know, he's a dirty scumbag and uh, he uh, he got caught and, and, and he wasn't even covering up his stuff. I mean, if, I've read through the indictments. It's just horrible <clears throat> what he did and what he thought he could do and who he was doing it for. I mean, this is not just, you know, people some, sometimes think, oh, it's all very victimless crime, you know, some lobbying or whatever. This guy, Paul Manafort, was out there basically putting in place murderous dictators around the world. And, and, the, and the one that was he's most famous for being involved when with is is this guy um, from Ukraine, um, Yanukovych, the um, who was Putin's guy in Ukraine until until he had to flee back to Russia with his tail between his legs, and and the stuff that Paul Manafort was doing, you know, people have died because of a lot of people have died in a lot of different countries because Paul Manafort was keeping dicta- murderous dictators in power using all sorts of political tools, and now all of a sudden he's got caught. He's he's um, uh, he's already been convicted and sentenced in one set of trials, and he will be convicted and sentenced in another set of trials. And he has really only one choice, which is um, I mean, uh, I, I mean, he's such an amoral guy. I, I don't. I mean, who knows whether he even cares about his family? But I think that he's just going for broke and saying, okay, my, my uh, even even um, even with cooperating, I'm still going to spend the next ten, fifteen years in jail. Um, and maybe the rest of my life in jail, I might as well just hold out for a pardon and see what happens. And given that, and given all the other things that we've seen over the last the last few years, and given the fact that you're mentioned by name by Putin on many occasions, including at that bizarre um, summit in Helsinki, to what extent do you fear for, for your own life? Well, they, they'd love to kill me. Um, <clears throat> they've threatened to kill me. Um, they've threatened to kidnap me. Um, they've uh, uh, tried seven times to have me arrested. Through Interpol, they've tried to have me extradited from the UK and various other countries. They're trying uh, they, uh, every <clears throat> every week or so. I'm 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 like one of the main characters on on Russian state TV as they um, make up stuff about me. And they they, they accused you yeah. of of Sergei Magnitsky's murder only only in the last week or so. Not just Sergei Magnitsky's murder. They've they've accused me of being a serial killer. They've said, I mean they they said I've killed five people. Um, uh, they're they're like losing their heads. I mean, you know, that one guy could cause so much trouble for them. That they're just like kind of getting emotional about all this stuff. And and uh, um, 
so so the so the question is, do I fear for my life? Um, I don't live in fear because if I lived in fear, that that would that they would then have achieved their objective. People who live in fear don't don't um, uh, don't do what I do. Um, and I, the reason I don't live in fear is is that um, I, I think I owe it to Sergei Magnitsky to uh, he he was braver than anyone me or anyone I know standing up to the Russians in a much more precarious situation, and they killed him. And I owe owe, owe him you know he gave his life. Um, for 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 me and for for work for for supporting me and I I I have to make sure that I'm not the coward that then is cowed by their uh, by the, by their threats and so I'm I, I don't live in in fear I do take precautions I try um, in lots of different ways to make it more difficult for them to uh, to kill me and perhaps the the best protection I have is just to continue to talk openly like we're doing here today so that everybody knows what these people are up to do you have any insight into what happened um Ten days ago or so, when uh, it looked as if the new head of Interpol would be a Russian, and uh, that was obviously a source of great concern to you. You mentioned the many extradition warrants which have been issued by Russia for you, red notices, um, and then it didn't happen. Do you, do, do you know how, how that all panned out? Yeah, I was intimately involved in this whole process. The um, uh, so so j- just take a step back. Russia corrupts international organizations as a matter of of, uh, of fine art. F- FIFA. They, they got, so Russia shouldn't have been hosting the World Cup, but they bribed a bunch of people to get FIFA to, to give them the World Cup. The International Olympic Committee, they bribed members of the International Olympic Committee so that they hosted the Sochi Olympics. Um, in all different organizations, <clears throat> they're, they're specialists at, at um, bribing people. And it's not very hard. You know, in Switzerland, it might have been hard for them to find the, the guy in the police who would take money. But it ain't hard to find the guy in the Central African Republic who's taking money. Um, and those people all have equal votes. And so at Inter- had, there was a big election at, at Interpol. Who is going to be the next president? And, and you know what? Not, not a single person in the world other than a few people at Interpol even knew this election was taking place. And so the Russians did what they always do, which is, you know, organized. You know, and it probably wasn't even a lot of money. It was probably like five, ten thousand um, dollars per envelope and gone around and bought a bunch of votes. <clears throat> and so they were sitting there all very confident that. They were going to run that. That Vladimir Putin was, was going to run the international police organization of the world. I mean, what a coup that would have been if he had achieved it. <clears throat> and it was only because of this um, very um, clever guy in London. His name is Jago Russell. He was the head of an organization called Fair Trials International, which is like keeps an eagle eye on Interpol. And he he saw this happening, and um, and so he um, he put out a tweet about this happening. He wrote a letter and he alerted me. And then I got on the case, and um, and then I wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post saying, "Do we want to let the 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 uh, you know Putin become in charge of the international police organization?" Then all of a sudden, all, all members of Congress were up in arms and calling up their uh, calling up uh, uh, Pom- Secretary Pompeo, the Secretary of State. Same thing was happening in the British Parliament. The same thing was happening in the European Parliament. The same thing was happening all over the place. Canadian Parliament, and um, and all of a sudden, within like four days, um, uh, this thing went from Russia handing out envelopes to like every freedom-loving country in the world calling up um, their allies and and perhaps calling up the Justice Minister of the Central African Republic and saying, "Hey, are you voting with us? Or are you voting with the bad guys?" And probably he he made a call to the person doing the votes and say, "Hey, you know, just do, you know do the right thing here," and and so and and in the end. Um, uh, uh, and this was a great operation. The the uh, the the vote went 101 for the South Korean candidate, who's totally totally legit, and 61 for the Russian. And I guess some people just still took their envelopes for the 61. 
Uh, finally, can I ask you, do you share my view that these this chain of events seems to be accelerating at the moment, that events in Washington and, and, and around the world, I think I, I got the impression from you earlier that you thought that the the regime in Russia is under increasing pressure and perhaps is not as solid as it, as it, as it was a few years ago. Well, it definitely is not as solid as it was a few years ago because um, money is the um, is the glue that holds it all together and there's less, less money. Oil prices are lower and um, sanctions are biting. And because of that, um, uh, there's a really sort of tough situation for Putin. Um, and so he does two things. So if there's less money around... Um, and by the way, the money in Russia gets really divided hugely unequally, like the top 1,000 people get all the money and everyone else lives in, in destitute poverty. And so as the money is, is, is diminishing, Putin has to come up with um, ways in which to um, keep people on side. And if he can't um, uh, motivate them with uh, carrots, he does it with sticks. And so there's a huge amount of repression going on in Russia. And the other, the other way he does it is by is if people are mad at him, he tries to deflect their anger and he starts a bunch of wars. And that's what this whole Ukraine situation is about. The Russians have no beef with Ukraine. The only reason why they're fighting with Ukraine is they need a war so that the commander in chief can be sort of demanding everybody's patriotic mm. fervor. And, it's the Slobodan Milosevic strategy. It's the Slobodan Milosevic strategy. It's Machiavelli 101, which is, you know, start a war if you're, if you're unpopular. <laughs> Oh, we know what happened to Slobodan Milosevic in the end, finally, after, after, after a lot of events. But the, the, the thing I wonder is, we know that when criminals are deposed or removed, um, and in this case, a criminal administration, there's usually another criminal that steps in. With your knowledge of, of, of Russia, what prospect is there of actual political reform or an improvement in the way? Um, I've got no confidence whatsoever that, that I mean, it's, it's a totally um, criminal state. And there are people, there are a few few uh, sort of um, voices of reason, of, of honesty. There's an uh, there's a, there's a anti-corruption activist named Alexei Navalny who, um, uh, who has become, the, you know, through viral video and YouTube and Twitter um, exposure has become the most formidable political opponent to Vladimir Putin. Um, but, you know, they'll do everything they possibly can to stop him. And, um, you know, people say, what, what's going to change in Russia? And I, I think that nothing is going to change in Russia. I think that, that it's just going to become Putin and his regime is going to become more and more hostile, malicious and, and deadly to the rest of the world. And, <clears throat> and we need to understand this. And, and it used to be a Cold War about the spread of communism. Now it's going to have to be a Cold War about the spread of criminality. And we're going to have to contain Russia. And, um, and there's a lot of people in the West that don't, haven't, haven't woken up to that in, in the halls of power. Bill Brader, thanks very much. Thank you. And that's it for today's podcast. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon. And remember that you can subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider might be. You can mail me at hlinehan at irishtimes.com or you can always find me on Twitter. Until the next time, thanks for listening.